What's up, good people in podcast land? Welcome to Convene. I'm your host, Chris Penrose. Convene is a conversation series with a narrative arc. Since 2017, we have brought the creative community in Toronto together to dive into topics ranging from creative direction and visual storytelling to contracts, pricing your work, and space to create. This podcast is dedicated to sharing the audio from those conversations. Just a heads up, when people get passionate about sharing knowledge, sometimes they throw some explicit language in there. So there's some of that in this episode. Enjoy. On today's episode, we are sharing from Convene, Sign on the Dotted Line, a conversation about contracts and collaboration. This conversation covered a range of creative industries, film, music, podcasting, photography, creative direction, event production, and more, offering practical tips and wisdom from experience. We tackle questions like, what do I need to cover in a contract? How do I negotiate without risking an opportunity? How do I introduce a contract into a collaboration? And what's the best way to protect my ideas and intellectual property? We had an amazing lineup that covered so many perspectives on contracts. We had Divya Shoshana, an entertainment lawyer with Hall Weber, with artists across all of the creative industries as clients, including music, film, television, visual art, and literature. We had Jonathan Ramos, who has been bringing hip-hop and R&B shows through Canada for over 25 years. As creator of Rap Season and director of live music for Inc. Entertainment, he has a resume that includes shows by Drake, Travis Scott, Chance the Rapper. He was most likely behind your most memorable concert experiences in the city. We also had Gideon Ray, who is an actor, model, filmmaker, and content creator. She has her own podcast and she stars in the web series Anarchy. She's also collaborated with Rupi Carr, Rocky Muta, and the designer Manny Jassal. Lastly, we had Jellystone. He is a legendary MC from Rexdale who's been instrumental to the local hip hop scene and foundational to the global impact of the Toronto sound. His experience stretches across the decades, from shows and rap battles in the 80s that established hip hop in Toronto to over two decades in the music business. This conversation took place in November 2018 in partnership with Artscape Daniels Launchpad and with support from the Canada Council. Just to begin the conversation, I mean, all of you, you all have contracts in some way and shape and form in your life. If you can just talk about like, what is your relationship to contracts and how does that show up on the work you do? Jonathan, you want to start? Uh, I mean, for me, the first time I saw a con- contract as it relates to what I do, what they call a performance contract, it was fairly intimidating. They, they haven't changed much in the years I've been doing this, which is 25 odd years. So... Uh, my first contract came via a fax machine, and uh, it took up my whole roll of fax. Yeah, I was going to say, how many pages was it? It was a lot, and then I had to uncurl them, and then let them, f- anyways. Uh, <laughs> but it's when you're, you know, and I, I've been doing this independently for my entire career, uh, but at the end of the day, it's a, it's a fairly, it doesn't change for me from show to show, it varies depending on the show, but it's just, a, it's, a, it's basically the agreement you make with, in my case, an agent and a band, and that sort of memorializes the terms of, of that conversation. And it's really a, a, a record that has to cover every possible scenario. And I'd say most of the time, 80% of the, of the things in that contract don't come into play. It's just there 
just in case. And you know, fortunately, touch wood, uh, I've never had to really find out what it means to sign a contract for. But uh, most of the stuff, like I said, it's if you really have to, if it has to be enforced sort of legally, then there's bigger issues at play. But really, that's all it is. It's a sort of a conversation uh, that's put on paper. And um, Jelly, I just want to jump to you for a second because one of the forms of contracts you would deal with would be like sending Ramos a performance or your agent sending him a performance agreement. But can you talk about some of the other types of contracts that have been a part of your work? Just the, uh, the formats, really. Well, I've signed... Uh I've been in publishing contracts, uh, record recording contracts, um, management contract, agent contracts. <laughs> we've we've uh, um, basically. Tell me the question again. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I just want to to begin the conversation so that people are oriented the type of contracts that you have experience with. Okay. So well, performance contracts. So like, I've never seen a record contract myself. Um, you know, or pu and the difference between a publishing contract is obviously different than a development contract, or yeah, absolutely. Um, uh, red contracts are usually like a dictionary thick um, because it deals with a lot um, in terms of you know going from just creating something out of nowhere and involving a group of people and then a big machine of a corporation and trying to get it to you, the public. Um, management contracts are based on, put like every, very, uh, on, on a point that, that you mentioned uh, in the, the beginning and, yeah. and about managing uh, the relationship um, in in every instance of a contract, in my opinion, that is the most important thing. Um, whether it's publishing, which has to do with your actual uh, intellectual properties, um, in terms of your writing or or producing of of sounds, um, to a management contract, which is then between you and another individual or individuals or or a company, depending on what that entity is uh, how that entity is structured. But uh, essentially, it's all about relationships. And one thing I learned about contracts, uh, and you alluded to it just now, Jonathan, is uh, if, you know, if you have to refer to a contract about your relationship, then the contract, in my opinion, is not worth the paper. It's written on. Um, it's, it's, uh, it's really about the relationship, and uh, regardless of what's on paper, if you have a good relationship, you're gonna you're gonna sort of figure things out. But again, from a legal standpoint, I, I, in my opinion, I think a contract is there for. In my case, if I can't speak for myself, so whatever the agreement was, it's already on paper. People are able to say, "Hey, okay, well, this is what." It's supposed to be happening, and uh, etc. I hope I answered that okay. Yeah, you did, and and I know um, you had a similar sentiment about. I, I, you might have used the same wording. Um, it's not worth the paper it's printed on if you have to refer to it. Yeah, I mean, so you, to go back to your question, you know, what is your day-to-day -day interaction with contracts? I literally interact with them on a day-to-day -day basis in the sense that I draft them every day, and and, and so uh, that's the medium that I'm most comfortable in. You know. 
a lot of you folks today are probably more comfortable in front of the camera or behind the camera. I'm, my medium is contracts. I live and breathe them. And I demystify them for people. Um, and people from all sectors of the media and entertainment industry. So, you know, we can get into kind of different types of contracts, but I think, you know, to begin the conversation discussing the basics of a contract and what makes an enforceable versus unenforceable contract is super important. And I see that because that's a concern that a lot of people, new and old clients walking into my office, have right out of, right out of the gate. You know, like, what have, I, what have I signed? What have I given away? Um, or people ask that question often at the wrong time, which is like <laughs> after they've signed it. After the fact. <laughs> after the fact. Well, and, and I think it's also, would, you, would it be fair to say that a lot of times the reason why people um, ask the question, what does this contract actually say after they've signed it, is because they assume that everything was going to go fine. That's right. I mean, you're starting with a certain, hopefully you're starting with a certain level of trust in every business relationship that you have. And I think that a contract doesn't necessarily hinder that trust. I think it helps build that trust. Mm -hmm. It's the building blocks and the, the foundation for a really good business relationship. Um, because it, it says a lot. Even just going through the process of negotiating a contract with someone, it, it can reveal a lot about that person. What you really care about comes out. And what, yeah. what's not as important also can come out in those conversations. Yeah, I, you know, you can see red flags just in, even in that early stages of negotiating mm -hmm. a contract. And if I'm sure we'll get to this later in terms of, you know, someone's initial reaction is, oh, let's just keep this cash. Like, let's just stay friends. Like, you know, that's not going to happen so well. <laughs> Yeah, that is going to come up. Um, Gideon, I just want to give you a chance as well to talk a little bit about, uh, because you wear so many hats, just a very surface level, like what are the types of contracts you deal with and interact with? Yeah, so um, as an actor, I, I work with um, my agency and, and obviously I always get a new contract with whatever gig that I do get to land on, which looks completely different each time. Um, honestly, contrasts scare the hell out of me, so <laughs> I think for me, yeah, I always... Most people. Yeah, they do. Um, mostly because I don't understand the legal terms or the language that is being used. Uh, that could be more simplified, but for some reason they're just thrown at you and, and it can be very intimidating. Um, but over the years, I've started to get more comfortable in asking the people around me, and I've been lucky enough to have so many people that have, you know, there's some people in the audience that do help me, um, you know, look over the, uh, the contract and, like, understand my value and, you know, this actually means this and you should be, be careful of that or whatnot. And um, working with different brands as well, um, that could be really scary because, you know, you're like, oh, I got this opportunity. I'm not going to question them about what they have to say. So I think those are things that can get really intimidating for artists. Well, and also I think, especially when you're being given it and it's huge and there's a lot of the times it's like, it's presented as these things are unchangeable. Like exactly. it's not, you know, maybe certain terms are in there we can change or, you know, numbers we can push up and down, but right. oh no, all of these other clauses, that's just the, the template, yeah, right? the clauses are the scary part. <laughs> yeah. Um, now, Divi, just going to the initial um, nugget that started this whole, you know, the genesis of this conversation was you describing a contract as a vision for a business relationship. You know, I think we started already to um, touch on that, and I did want that to be the foundation. But can you go into more what you mean by that and like what, what that statement 
um, looks like in those, not just the easy type of situations, but like in, in the harder parts where you have people that are sometimes trying to take advantage of another person or, or want to win the, in this deal. Totally, yeah, so I think a contract can be used to set yourself up for success and basically to avoid blind spots in a new relationship. Um, you know, it's, I think a contract is imperative to set parameters for the business relationship so that you're both, so neither party is going into it blind and all the expectations are on the table and you really have an honest discussion about expectations, about you know, what the actual exchange of goods or services is and what the monetary or non-monetary value is for that exchange and what the intentionality is behind the contract. Um, those are actually the kind of the tenets of what make an enforceable um, agreement. Um, you know, there has to be a real exchange of goods or services for real consideration, non-monetary or monetary, um, and an intention to enter into a legal agreement. And by the way, the parties have to have a certain level of competence. So, you know, what, you know, entering into a contract with a minor looks very different than entering into an agreement with an adult. Um, you know, you have to have a certain level of mental competence. Um, can't be drunk or high when entering into a contract. <laughs> it's probably not going to end so well. I'm sure that's happened, though, <laughs> from sure. time to time. <laughs> uh, Look at the industry we're in. <laughs> I, I, I would say, just to, to add um, a fun fact, my, my very first record contract that, that I got, was, I was 17. And uh, um, I was... For whatever reason, I understood that I was 17, and that if I signed that contract by myself, it wasn't legally binding. <laughs> and that's sort of why I signed it. Uh, <laughs> and, uh, but funny enough, there was a, a spot at, uh, and I don't know if they still do this sort of thing, um, but there was a spot at, at the corner of Bathurst and, and Queen. Uh, I don't remember what it was, but they would give you an hour free, like you could talk to a lawyer for an hour for free, uh, whatever type of law uh, you you uh, were interested in. So uh, when I signed this contract <clears throat> with uh, with this first my first ever contract uh, with with a, a record company that. Uh, you, you know, <laughs> some of us may know. I'll, I'll, I'll leave the name out, but they they were responsible for some some uh, some other Canadian legends and and um, and and did did a lot of good things for the city at that time. Uh, long story short is, we uh we got a contract. It was it was super thick. I, I breezed through it. I learned the word notwithstanding. Um, <laughs> and, and, uh, here to four, here, here to after. Yes, <laughs> totally. Uh, yeah. Anyway, <laughs> it was uh, super confusing, very, very intimidating. Um, but I had no problem signing it because I knew I was uh, a minor, essentially. Um, but after signing the contract, we we garnered some attention in the city. Um, we did the uh, Black Moon Far Side show, and the. Uh, Direct Company then, we were one of three artists uh, or groups on the label. After we, we were the last to get on the label after we did that show and the excitement that, that uh, ensued, uh, uh, then they asked us to be the first out on the label. 
So um, at this point, everything, the contracts became real, meaning the things that were in the contract were about to be then, you know, uh, manifested and applied and, and executed. Uh, more words I learned through contracts. I um, was going to use the word manifest. That's so funny that you said yeah. that. It was literally on the tip of my tongue. Manifest in reality? Yes, yeah. absolutely. And, and uh, so it became very real at that point. And uh, Sky Juice, God bless you, he, he was one of uh, one third of our group. And he found this place at Queen and Baffers, booked us the hour. We went there with the contract. And uh, the lawyer uh, said he needed more time with it as he went through. He sent us away. We came back a few days later. He had a whole bunch of points and, you know, uh, what have you. And um, <laughs> the, the thing, and I'll never forget this, the thing he's told us uh, after was that if you ever make any money with this contract, you'll never make any money. <laughs> and, uh, but that, that, that's like the math of it, right? Like, though you're saying, like, notwithstanding here by and here to and all these words, like, there's like a intellectual math that happens in these contracts that adds up to what people end up with, right? Like, to your story, I remember a friend of mine who was, you know, just an emerging musician and someone was starting up a record label. I didn't know anything about it. She asked me to come with her to the meeting. He's a lawyer and everything. And just looking at trying to add up what was in there, it was like they can make all the decisions on what's spent on your project and you will only get paid this percentage after everything that they decided to pay for is paid back to them. So it's like, do you want them to decide how much, they could, they could choose a caterer that's $5,000 instead of $500 and your album sales have to pay that back before you ever see anything. And you know, are they really in the position to market it to to make enough money back ever, right? And and you know, but do you do you have the support to to see through that yourself, right? So you saying this lawyer broke that down for you, and and he, what, where did you go from there? He, he um yeah, he definitely did. He he, he um showed us basically what happened was this: the the guy that wrote us the contract was way ahead of his time. Because essentially what it was, it was a 360 deal, where um, what that is, is that the company is then involved in all of your revenue streams as an artist, your, your, you know, obviously your recording, uh, then your touring, live, merch your merch, your tour. live appearances, any uh, deals or sponsorships. Time. So he was like in everything at the time, and at that time it was unheard of. So, uh, you know, that was sort of the, the, the thing. What, what, basically what happened was nobody's ever, many people don't know of the group Original Rude Boys, Orb, which is, uh, was very influential to Smith & Wesson, a group uh, out of Brooklyn. Um, it was signed to uh, uh, Duck Down and, and uh, uh, well, Black Moon. Like Nervous uh, Records. Yes. Yeah. Uh, so uh, they stole our whole style. <laughs> um, but uh, long story short is um, basically we, we, we uh, and you've probably said this, and I don't know, you probably heard this, it sounds cliche, but they say in, in business and in contracts, you never get what you deserve, you get what you negotiate. And uh, basically what I tried to do was to negotiate different terms to the contract according to the guidelines that the lawyer had, had uh, pointed out, like these things need to change. If these things change, you'll be okay. Um, 
the, the company at the time was not willing to change. And so we, um, we went on strike. We said, we weren't going to the studio. <laughs> we weren't going to do anything until the uh, contract was changed. Um, and it wasn't changed, so you guys never got an orb record. <laughs> That's basically what happened. Yeah, and the, and the world is, you know, lost out for that. But at the same time, it's like you were able to have a career because of yes, that, right? Absolutely. Um, Gideon, I wanted to ask you, you know, you've had so many experiences with different types of contracts because of the range of things you do. You know, similar to what Jelly's saying in terms of looking at the situation and having and saying, you know what, we are not, if we ever make money, we're not making any money. This is not something we want to be a part of. We would rather lose the opportunity than be in that position. Um, what, in that spirit, like what are things that you look for consistently in terms of priorities and in terms of red flags with the, all the different types of contracts that you might engage with and the types of opportunities that you are presented with through contracts? Um, I feel like because I have a range of things, so it, it, it depends. Like if, for example, if it's a long-term contract, let's say uh, I'm working with a network for a year, um, which was what I was doing with my podcast, uh, it can get kind of confusing because you're like, oh, well, this is such a great opportunity. They're going to level, le Ooh, okay. um, they're gonna level us up and, and you know, it's going to really help the brand and whatnot. But then when you look at the contract, they were like also talking about how, it, and I wouldn't have known this. My manager actually checked, uh, saw this and she called it out. Um, and we weren't going to sign until they negotiated that. But just even the terminology of like how the idea was going to be theirs. And I would have to, once like the contract, if they decide, hey, we don't want to work with you anymore, all of a sudden now, something that I've built on my own um, is not going to belong they to them. They can re replace you as the host. Exactly. They yeah. can replace me as the host, which makes no sense because it's named after me. So I don't know. But um, And just even having like credit as an executive producer, all those things, um, just like that was really difficult to understand, but negotiating that and having someone by your side that does understand the language is super important, especially if you're an artist. Um, I, again, it, when it comes to, even for myself, when I started doing things on my own and, and sending contracts, like the templates online, um, <laughs> uh, that would be confusing as well because I wouldn't really know exactly what is written in there that could be, you know, they could use against me as well. So I've been lucky enough that it hasn't gone that far. But um, again, it can get really tricky when you are trying to do stuff on your own and, and send different types of contracts to different things and always have to create a whole new thing for each project. Well, I think the gem for me in that story is that you ownership of your idea um, is really important to you and someone wanting to own your idea is that red flag and that is you know you might not be going through all of the contract and all these details and there's some things you might be willing to give up for an opportunity but to to own my idea for what you're giving me in exchange it's like it, it's it's not worth it. And I think it's so important to know those things in a contract that like what is what matters to you? What is that important element? Um, Divya, I wanted to ask you, I know one of the things we talked about was just the spectrum of contracts. So when we use that word, I mean, I think most times what people are thinking of is like a thick document, but there is a range from like a verbal agreement to the really complex, you know, huge ones that, you know, Jelly got. Uh, at the age of 17, 
as an artist, can you talk about the spectrum a little bit? Like what is there from verbal and what that kind of consists of to kind of the less complicated one page or two? Yeah, for right. sure. So uh, I think that it's a major misconception by a lot of people that um, you ha an agreement has to be in writing. Um, in fact, an agreement, a verbal agreement can be made and a verbal agreement that's enforceable can be made. And that's not something, it's not a situation you want to find yourself in. So we're talking about this, you know, Chris is talking about a spectrum of contracts. So say on the far left side is like a verbal agreement, an exchange, like a promise in, in essence, right? Um, a promise, you know, I'll... Uh, get you tickets to weekend's next concert if you clean my room. Um, and <laughs> I'll clean your room for that. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> I'm like back to being 15 again because Jelly Stone's on this panel. <laughs> um, you know, so like the, the, what makes that kind of what what makes a verbal agreement enforceable is really the question, and it's not easy for a verbal agreement to be enforceable in a court of law. That's the good news. I mean, it, it, there has to be a paper trail really showing, um, really making it clear what the exchange was and what the agreement was and whether, you know, there has to be a meeting of the minds as they call it in, in legal lingo. Um, and if it's not clear what the terms are, because there is no paper trail and they're backing up the verbal conversation, or the emails are all over the place and it's not clear what the terms are, then if one party's trying to enforce it in a court of law, the judge's going to be like, you're out of luck. It's really not clear to me what the agreement is here. There's no real meeting of the minds. So well, what can people do in, the, in place of not having that contract yeah. to ensure that they can prove there's a meeting of the minds? So like, what are some approaches people can take or... Mm -hmm. To, to ensure that they are, they are covering themselves where the agreement at this point is verbal and so, you haven't gone to that contract? What, my response to that simply is that I do not recommend anyone entering into a verbal agreement. I, I advise against verbal agreements precisely because they create a lot of misunderstanding and misinterpretation that can be used and held against you. So it's one thing to be having a conversation leading up to a contract because let's face it, no contract can be made without a, com a verbal conversation initially. That's step number one, right? But you don't stop at that point and, let, and, and continue in your relationship without um, materializing something into paper because it's gonna lead into misunderstandings. You have a discussion about terms. You kind of make sure that the other party's aware that you, know, you still have to seek advice from your representation or counsel or whatever you want to call it and that you know this conversation is still subject to change you know it's a, it's a casual conversation so that both parties can put everything on the table and understand what the exchange is and what the expectations are and you're still going back and forth in no way should you lead the other party to believe that this is a you know the agreement uh, before you seek some kind of counsel, some kind of representation. And, you know, it can be a lawyer, it can be a friend or a mentor or, you know, a, a business colleague or a parent. Um, but, yeah, so that's that's how you protect so that, yourself that tip in those is like early how, stages. The way to take, a, to kind of redirect a verbal agreement is to introduce that to say, okay, I'm going to take this. Uh, understanding we have to count yeah, to get like, advice it, on it or exactly counsel. it's like I like the direction this yeah. conversation is going in I think it's been really productive and fruitful and we've covered a lot of ground but uh, let me get back to you 
Um, and, and I know one of the things we did talk about was like in that, in that stage before you do get to something more binding and, and thorough is like your emails, meeting notes and that kind of thing. Like how important would you say is that element of making sure that like things are documented as well, that these conversations you're having are not just like only in the air of breath? Yeah, I mean, again, it's, I think it's important to have a paper trail and email trails to, to show the back and forth and to show how the parties kind of reach real deal terms that they're going to then convert into a contract. Indeed, the first question a lawyer is going to ask you when you go to meet a lawyer is, okay, let me see your, let me see your deal terms, let me see your email exchange, uh, to really get an idea of what the relationship is going to be. You know, you come into my office, I've, ne I've never met you before, I don't know you, I certainly don't know your business partner. My number one goal is to really get to know you, and, and, and so it's really a fact analysis. It's, I'm digging into the facts and trying to understand what has happened and what you, what you want to happen. And underneath the facts, I'm also trying to understand the tone of the relationship. So there's the factual and the underlying the factual, which is really the tone of the relationship, which informs how I approach the negotiation. You know, am I going to be aggressive or am I not going to be aggressive? Right. And, then I, and then from there, it progresses to more and more complicated from a one page to more and more thorough types of deals, depending on... Yeah, I mean, that. you know, one page, it's not... There's no rule that says that, like, a one-page agreement is going to be a bad agreement or two page, or, you know, 20 pages is better than two pages. There's really no such rule. I've seen 30-page agreements that are awful, as you guys have just, just described, and I've seen, I've drafted agreements that are three or four or five pages long that are pretty solid that get the job done, depending on what the job is. You know, especially for creative collaboration in early days, you know, someone like Kieran getting together with someone else to create a podcast, you don't know the, what kind of life this intellectual property is going to take. Mm -hmm. It's really early days. Yeah, you're not going to, no lawyer is going to put together a 30-page agreement for you, and if they did, they would be wrong. Um, it has to just be a skeleton of the relationship in a form that is understandable by everyone and that is enforceable because what's the point of having, you know, of entering into a contract if it's not going to be enforceable? This, yeah. this is what they call a deal memo, correct? That's right. Well, and I mean, in, in terms of that question of like, what's the point? I think a lot of times it is related to those details. And Jonathan, I wanted to ask you, you know, you see these performance contracts all the time. Um, they can be quite lengthy, quite detailed. And there's this, you know, mythological story now of green M&Ms. <laughs> what's the significance of green M&Ms and performance contracts? Uh, yeah, I don't know if, uh, I don't know where that actually started. Uh, People kind of dated back to the 70s, but uh, and it's reached sort of sort of mythological proportions, even beyond just music industry. But the story goes that there is a uh, now legendary, I guess, rock band in the 70s that had very specific requirements on their rider, uh, their performance rider. And a performance rider is just a it's a it's an it's a, a part of a contract that defines certain things. Right. So uh, a rider is a handbook. Uh, to make it's like a, a manual to a car that it basically is your guide to everything the artist that you need to help the artist have the performance that they're engaged to do. That's really what it is. Um, and a lot of these are form uh, documents 
that cover every scenario. So if I am uh, doing a show with an artist at Rebel, uh, I will get the same rider that governs that artist possibly doing a show at Scotiabank Arena or at Veld Music Festival. It covers everything. So a lot of it does not apply. Uh, but the story goes that uh, this uh, band was very specific about what they needed, like down to like certain things. And there are artists like this. Uh, and, uh, you know, they go, they do the show, and inevitably uh, there's a promoter that forgets this element. And the band walks into the dressing room, sees that they, they had asked for, now you can buy M&Ms in different colors. This is like, you know, yeah, not in those days. three decades ago yeah. where they just sold them in little bags. And they were like, we only want red M&Ms in our dressing room. So literally, as a promoter, you had to buy 40 bags of M&Ms and then sort them and put them in a bowl. We don't want a bowl of M&Ms. We want a bowl of red M&Ms. So it was red, not green? It could be. Now, <laughs> the color is like, yeah, it's, it's, it's sort of... I want to have the story right you know, now. But, so the, and, and, and there is a story, and again, this may or may not be true, and I'm sure you know, a quick search on the internet will, will verify it, but you know, that it became an issue, and the band walked out of a, a, a venue because that wasn't there. Now the the and you know, it's not about them being obsessed with green well it, it actually right? might have been but it, it's like you know you can't account for artists and their tastes and their demands and their egos but <laughs> there is the the equivalent of that is our details in a rider that are only there for the express purpose of making sure that the promoter reads it right, right? so that's really it and and, and you know I equated to uh, this happened to me in grade six where we came in one day to school, to class, the teacher's like, surprise test, everybody put your books off the table, nothing, there were no phones back then, so. Uh, and he's like, I'm handing Only this out. Though there were, and they every, just were plugged into a wall. Exactly, yeah, yeah, yeah. and everybody, so everybody moaned and groaned, like, oh God, there's a test, and he's like, read it, front to back, then finish it, right? Right, right? Then start it. So, of course, everybody's going through it, <laughs> and 10 minutes into the test, I start seeing people like, turn the paper over and hand it in. So of course me, I'm like, oh, I gotta hurry up. So I get <laughs> down, there's 12 questions, could have been 20, but and I get to the end. And the last, I, last question is complete questions two and six and turn your test in. The very last one, yeah, yeah, yeah. right? And the people that were smart, and he was very, he didn't, he didn't belabor the point to the point where everybody's like, what's up? He was just like, read it carefully, listen to me, read it carefully, yeah. complete it. And then, and of course, there's some people that were like, you know, everybody's turned their test in. There's some people that are like, ch -ch 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 and and of course, you know. So, and that was the exercise. And I, and yeah, that's I, a crazy life lesson. And I didn't learn anything yeah. because it's sort of like, you know, then I get contracts, and uh, you know, it's it's hard to read a con. It's really hard to read a con. I don't know how you do it, but it's like. Yeah. Yeah. It's it's monotonous. It's yeah. If you don't have a divya in your life. You need to find one because yeah, it's not yeah. for it's, everybody, right? Yeah, and, I uh, find awesome. sorting M and M's more tedious. Yeah, <laughs> and, it, and in, it, I, could, it, I don't know how you do that. And there's a stage in the in the in the process of doing a show called advancing, which is basically the conversation that in my situation, my production manager who runs the show for me will have with the artist tour manager, and all they do there is talk about the, sh the they talk about how the show is going to proceed. And they use, and it's like you said, contracts are there for when we're in, you're not in the room. So when I sign something with an agent, I'm not there really when it's being played out. And the agent's definitely not there because he's in an office in LA. 
but really the people that work for us on the respective sides, you look at that as a reference point. So they don't have to call me and say, what did you agree to when it came to right, right. catering, things like right. that. So, um, and that's, you know, the very first show I ever did, I looked at the rider and I got everything. Like I, you know, they said a limousine from the airport, I booked the biggest one I could find. Yeah, yeah. They said 10 rooms in a hotel and four, I booked it all. And I only realized after the fact, like, you know, two years later, it's like, if I had simply asked them, if, do, do you need this? Nah, they don't need it. Well, they did, they so didn't that, need, they I needed did, five I didn't want to ask that question. I mean, just part of it is related to the contract conversation, but part of it is just curiosity. Like, without naming names, what's the craziest request you said no to and the craziest request you said yes to? I mean, it's, uh, there's nothing really, there's no, you know, in those conversations, and as I, you know, it's like anybody, as you develop and you get more confidence and more experience, then you start to understand how these things work. And a lot of it is simply that, just conversations, yeah. right? So when I'm going through and I said, listen, you know, this looks like there's 22 people on this tour. Uh, do you need this much food or do you need this? He's like, honestly, there's only 16 because when that was written, you know, that yeah. was for Europe and blah, blah, blah. So he's like, just get me like two bags of chips. He goes, the only thing you need to know is that they will not go on without that bottle of Hennessy. So yeah. if you forget everything, don't forget that. <laughs> forget the, you know, nobody eats the fruit tray. Nobody eats the veggie platter. That's a, that's a Everybody <laughs> has it. Because I don't understand as a, as a manager, when you're writing, a manager creates the rider and the manager wants the best thing for his artist. Yeah, yeah. He wants his artist to go on tour and eat vegetables and fruit and salad. So that's what he puts in the rider. Right, right, right. He'll give him, he'll give him like, you know, the Popeyes and that kind of stuff because that's what they want. But nobody eats that stuff. And yeah, I used to buy so many veggie trays and then I would take it home and I'd put it in my fridge. I was about to say, we'd, we'd send them home with people. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> we didn't even do that. I would, I would go into the dressing room after and just like, I can't waste this. I'd take it home. And, <laughs> and then three days later, I just, nobody wants yeah, to And eat you weren't like, who, did anyone yeah. touch this? Yeah. Like, you weren't like, who's breathing on this? Yeah. No? So that, just brought it to your family. And that's the thing. And, that's, <laughs> and then the, 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 the M&M story, and it takes, it takes a f different forms and different writers. If you're advancing a show with the tour manager, and this ideally happens probably like two to three weeks before a show, if you ask the tour manager the question, like, listen, do you need the red M&Ms or whatever it is? He's like, no, I just want to make sure you're reading the contract. Yeah. Thank you very much. And that's, that's really what it is, right? So to this day, I've never done it. But, you know, there are crazy things, but, you know, like artists sometimes want clean underwear. They'll give you like, I want, you know, uh, I don't know, Calvin Klein boxers, size this, this, or they want clean socks or clean undershirts because they come off stage they're yeah, yeah. and I'm like eh, you know what I'm not your laundry guy <laughs> just you know do. but it, and again depends on who's you know who's really holding the bag so right, right, I got a sold out show with you know Chance the Rapper I'm going to get him with one I'll get him what he wants yeah <laughs> it's like but if I'm dealing with another show you know whatever artist and you know we're not selling the tickets we thought and you know it's and they're a little bit gassed up in terms of who they think they are versus who they are. I'm like, yeah, bro, I'm not getting your underwear. He's gonna have dirty drawers. He's gonna keep dirty drawers. Yeah, yeah. You know what? I'll give you I'll give you a quarter so you go to the laundromat next door. But so you know you've made it when Ramos will buy you underwear. I don't have a choice because then really it's like if you know if and I've had this conversation where I fight with a tour manager and then an agent calls. He's like, really, dude? How much money are you making on the show? And I'm like, this. He's like. Dude, underwear costs like six bucks. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Really? And then all of a sudden, well, not Calvin Klein boxers. But well, all of a yeah, sudden, yeah. it makes you feel like <laughs> this big, right? Yeah, You're yeah, like, yeah. I'll get the underwear. Yeah, yeah I hear you. Um, and I think that, but that theme, just moving into conversation, and I wanted to pick up 
something that um, Divya pointed out, but getting you is related to, the, like say for something like the podcast, right? Like there are so many projects and ideas that begin very informally. They begin as a conversation. They begin um, as just testing out something. Sometimes they happen by chance, you know? you're planning to do something with this collective of people, that person happens to be there, they play a role in it, you move forward with them, but who owns the intellectual property of this? And who, you know, if this thing grows, what are the deal points and percentages? Like, you're not thinking about those things early on. Um, can you just talk a little bit about your experience of going from, we're doing this together as like family, friends, as community, to then having to introduce a contract into the conversation and think about a breakdown of what started as a collaboration. Yeah. Um, I think, well, <laughs> we talked about this a little bit, but just like the, the word collaboration is so loosely used, like everyone- It means can you do this for free? Yeah, exactly. <laughs> <laughs> so whenever ever I get an inquiry about, hey, can we collab? I'm like, um, what does that actually mean? So I, a lot of people, um, especially South Asians do it the most. I just have to shout out my, my people. Um, but they really do it a lot because I think as well, like um, I, I become friends with a lot of people. And what ends up happening is that um, because I'm friendly with these people and now all of a sudden we're like, hey, we don't really need a contract, right? And it's super hard to actually enforce a contract after that happens. So, um, for example, there was a company that I was working with, and I was working with them on several projects throughout the year. And uh, initially, we introduced the contract, but um, after that went successfully in their eyes, um, I realized way later that I charged them, really undercharged them <laughs> for the amount of work that I did. Um, they ended up pretty much saying we didn't need a contract anymore. And they were a company. Right, right. So it was just really hard for me to bring that conversation up. And it got, um, initially it was like, okay, yeah, that's fine. Um, and we continued to create projects together. And um, eventually we made an entire series together. And, uh, and because of all the confusion with our emails and stuff like that, missing emails, they didn't see this written or whatever, there was a lot of confusion on what was actually asked from me, what was asked from them, um, meeting deadlines and whatnot, and it got really, really frustrating, um, especially because they expected a lot more from me um, with just minimal amount of whatever they were paying or what we negotiated. So I think that's why it's really important to have, especially if you're an artist and you're doing free lens um, to have those contracts have those like you know concrete because verbal agreements are like my worst nightmare they happen to me all the time and Shit show. Yeah. It's, it always turns into yeah Divya I know like just the lawyer in you is listening to this conversation <laughs> what what are the thought bubbles can you like verbalize those what are you thinking when you're hearing this story and cringing guys <laughs> I'm sorry no, but yeah I mean, so the thing is in, in the entertainment industry contracts are all the more important because they are literally the vessel that you're going to use to monetize your art mm -hmm. you know it's like you're not just art this is we're in the industry where the arts is a business yeah. you know we're not just like it's one thing to look I have my, one of my hobbies includes painting, right? And I'm not really great at it, so I'm not, I'm planning on monetizing that anytime soon, right? But 
So there's, there's hobbies, but then there's really being serious about your art and being really good at it and really applying yourself as if it's your full-time job, which I'm sure like, you know, it seems like everyone in this room is probably doing that, right? And if it's your full-time job, you've got to make a living somehow. You're using your art to monetize, you're monetizing it. Um, and you really, so, so verbal agreements are not going to help you do that. You know, it's, you have to treat it like any other business relationship where um, the terms are quite clear and you know, what is expected of you is, is quite clear, and especially, especially when intellectual property is involved, mm -hmm. um, which 90% you know, of the contracts that I review, negotiate, or draft have a very strong intellectual property element to it. And that can get quite complex because the, the nature of rights are such that they can, there are many different types of rights in many different mediums, in many different territories. And every transaction in the entertainment industry, um, it's, it's possible that rights are being exchanged. But what, what rights are being exchanged and, and, and to use in what territory and what media and for how long? Mm -hmm. You know, like a show, an intellectual property like, like Kieran's show, you know, I, I don't know, did they end up kind of retaining that whole IP or? Um, what was it? What was the, I'm just curious. So we decided happens, like, to go happened? separate ways. <laughs> but were you able to retain your yes, show? Yes. Yeah, I was. Yeah. So yeah. that which was a good thing because I I mean I know if that you, if you had have signed the initial contract, yeah, that exactly. Wouldn't have been the that case. wouldn't have happened. Yeah. yeah. So I was really lucky that yeah. we did review it and make sure that happened. Yeah. So in our industry, there's a big distinction between service work and you know you're creating your own original IP and you're retaining it and you're hiring others to provide services. Mm -hmm. So, you know, it's one thing, I work in film and television a lot, so I have, a, you know, a number of my clients, their, their businesses are a bit of both, they're a mixed bag. They make their living, say, by doing ser production service work on, you know, big budget commercials. Mm -hmm. They don't plan on retaining that IP. Mm -hmm. uh, it's service work that they're getting paid good value for, and they're gonna give away that IP to the rightful owner. Right. But then there are other projects that they're developing that are passion projects or that they're, it's their baby. It's a script they wrote that they've been developing for years now. And, you know, any agreement that they're entering into about that IP, they have to be really careful that they're retaining all of those rights. Mm -hmm. And that language, the, you know, it, it can get lost in the legal jargon. And so that's where, you know, you really have to be detail-oriented. Is it possible to, you know, schedule maybe an hour or a consultation with a lawyer and just say, like, this is the type of work I do. This is the type of people I'm working with. Like, what kind of rights could possibly be owned or produced out of this relationship or out of this work? Because I think, like, I know for myself, like, there, there's, you know, the convene platform, right? That, that itself is something that it's not, I haven't brought that through all these legal um, you know, steps. I've worked with a lot of different organizations. And we talked about this, and I gave yeah, you some legal and, advice. About no, and <laughs> I'm not asking for free legal advice with an audience. Like, <laughs> <laughs> That's but what this so, is, isn't it? I, so. I, will, no, I will respect our client-lawyer <laughs> confidentiality. Hello, what but, do you take I, me for? But I just think that, like, um, you know, to, to that question, right, is, like, there's, there's moments where you start to realize that, like, okay, well, I'm doing this with one organization. It can start to look like this platform is their brand. And then, and then I'm making the assumption that every organization I'm working with is that they know that that's not their brand. It's a partnership. But, like, I, I would say I'm, I'm my literacy of the type of rights that are involved in the work I'm doing is pretty low. Mm -hmm. And I imagine, like, 
there's a lot of people that are doing like I remember um, giving this example and Jelly you would know this for sure like music video you're shooting a music video and there's like one two people you know you're like okay you decide the clothes you go get the clothes like and they'll get clothes from the mall and all that kind of stuff and you figure out what each person's gonna wear and all this kind of stuff no one's using the word stylist at that time for that person that was like the person in the you know in your crew that's like good with dressing and and figuring out how other people dress and you're not you didn't have the term stylist but there was someone who did that right and but it's like no stylist. Yeah, that's what I was thinking. We're just waiting to see that. I was, I was. I was. Um, but but I think to that point, right? It's like there's things that we do. There's th in, things that we're engaging with. There's properties and ideas that could have rights if something blows up and scales up that we don't necessarily have an awareness of. So is that something a, a lawyer can help creatives with? An sure. I mean, with? speaking. I, Contrary to popular belief, it's always useful to speak to a lawyer, and they're not that intimidating. Um, well, some of them are not that intimidating. The invoices, I think, are the can yes. be intimidating. Yes. <laughs> not the people so well, much. Well, and so it's useful <laughs> to have friends who are lawyers, because then in cocktails, I, mean, I get a, you know, friends asking me about legal advice at cocktail parties all the time. Like, so get what are you drunk. trying to get? Is that, is that a legal question that you're asking? <laughs> or a non-legal question? It sounds like a legal question. <laughs> And I've had like four glasses of wine. So, um, I mean, yeah, it's always a good idea to talk to a lawyer and get to know a lawyer and have a lawyer on your team. Uh, mm -hmm. You know, it's, you, you, we're all building, you know, a good team around us, especially as creatives. So that's, you know, lawyer, manager, agent, publicist, what have you. Um, but I think the, common, the, the answer will tend to be in that situation, um, the typical lawyer answer, which is it depends. We don't generally give legal advice in a vacuum, right? I can, there's, there's, you know, contract literacy and then there's legal advice. Contract literacy is something we can talk about in broad terms that we're doing today on this panel. Nothing I'm saying in particular today is, is sh or should be considered legal advice, right? It's about- That's recorded. Disclaimer. <laughs> fine friend. Fine friend, I speak in fine You know who the lawyer is on the panel. <laughs> So, <laughs> so, you know, like, I, I don't like giving that answer. It depends. It's, right, right. We need facts so I can really pin it down for you and not give you an, an answer in a vacuum. Um, so, but, but that's not to say that you have to come to me when, there's, when shit's already hit the fan. Yeah, yeah and I, I think that's, like, that, that's the, the point I really want to drive out. Like, I know I've, you know, a lot of times people you know, will say, you know, like, yeah, just, we're, this is just friends, or like we're just doing this, or even in terms of your time and resources, an opportunity comes up and you don't want to lose that opportunity, right? So introducing a contract into that situation, you might feel like I don't have the time and resources in this moment to do that, or I don't have the leverage. In I, this I, to I do would it. say, and I don't know if you would agree, is that when it, when it comes to contracts, uh, you gotta take your feelings out of it. Um, it's, it's business. Yeah, and totally. You um, said it better than me. Yeah, okay, so let me follow up on that though. Okay, so take the feelings out, but in, in a situation where the you're working together because you have a friendship or because you're close, like how, how in your experience do you approach that part of it where it's like, yes, we're, we hang out, we're friends, you know, your mom is like my mom, but we are going to do, you know, this work together and now these are like, this is the business side. How do you how do you introduce that conversation? You're, 
in terms of like somebody that, that you have a relationship with, your contract's going to be as good as your relationship. You know, if you, you have a great relationship with a person um, and you know who they are, you know, you deal with stand-up people, you know this per Example, my manager, who, uh, my ex-manager actually, let me say, uh, also managed a lot of uh, notable acts, very successful acts. Uh, he and I knew each other five years, four or five years before we actually started doing business business. And then we did business for over a decade without a contract. I only did a contract, we, we did a contract, uh, you're probably just cringing about this. But, uh, no, we, because a, a good relationship is really important. Yeah, like, totally. I agree with you that you know, it's not worth the paper, it's, a contract's not worth the paper it's on if it's not a good relationship. Yeah, we, we, basically our, our agreement was you, know, you, you eat what you kill, pretty much. And uh, you know, he brought something to the table, he ate off of it. If I brought it, I ate. Or if my friend brought it, they ate, you know what I mean? Um, uh, we did. We actually did a, a a formal contract, which was like a couple pages, because we we got into business with a, a, a larger corporation, and uh, with the larger corporation, they needed to see the the relationship. They needed that on paper, to, you know, just for legality purposes. So we did the contract for that purpose, but uh, we never looked. I never looked at it twice, <laughs> you know. Um, and when the time came for us to part ways, we, we did that without, uh, I never signed, a, I've never actually signed the, the uh, what do they call it, the termin termination papers in, in our you know, agreement. Um, that said, <laughs> and why I brought up deal memo, because in, in one of our, our scenarios, we had a deal memo, uh, which basically was a general, uh, outline of of what was to take place in the situation that that had, had come about at that time. Um, parts of the situation transpired; some parts didn't. Uh, but in the deal memo, it was very general, so there was no details to things. So when the details, the, the you know what what happens here when this happens, there, there was nothing to. Um, there was no direction, so it, right. it it did make things difficult, and this is where where I think um, it, regardless of your relationship, it's it's good to have uh, to have something, some outline. But again, it, your contract's only good as as the relationship. And I, and I think like your example to me is definitely like something that sounds like an outlier, right? Like it sounds like two people who have a high level of respect for each other as people who are putting integrity first over money. And, and I, I'm assuming that, um, you Those know- Those only people I, I wanna work with. Right. Personally. And, and, and not everyone gets that choice as well, right? So I think or like- Or that lucky. You yeah, know, that that's, yeah it, does, it is lucky, that I That is think, very lucky, you know? yeah. I, 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 I've been very and blessed. And I think and I think another dynamic too, right, is like is how much is that person you're working with depending on you as their income stream, right? So how much like if 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 there's not that desperation. I think that's sometimes what can also bend a contract, right? Is is if someone they need this thing and that and like you the agreement with you and them getting the most out of it is 
really what they're looking at to support themselves at the time. It, you know, it's true, and and that never really works out when people are desperate in that way. Because one of the things that uh, the said manager uh, we we used to say to each other is what's what's uh, what's twenty uh, what's a hundred percent of nothing. <laughs> you know what I mean? It's like we could talk all day about this idea, we're going to do this, and then you're concerned with, oh, well, if it makes a million, I need to have this. And if it, But all of this is if nothing is really, we're negotiating air pretty much. So um, the people that are, in my opinion and in my experience, that are overly concerned and, and trying to, you know, um, you know, cut out things for themselves that aren't, aren't really there yet, you know, I always, I'm a little leery, you know, it's like, if we're, if we're going into something and, and we have a good relationship and we're hoping and putting in our best efforts to make it fruitful, um, you know, when it's, when it's fruitful, as the fruit begins to ripe, you will see sort of what's what's there and you yeah, sort yeah, of yeah. know, okay, you know what? Yeah, I think, yeah, Divya has kind of pointed that to, to that too, right? As the relationship grows or project grows or career grows, you start to see, you know, more complexity to like what the opportunities are and, and what needs to be understood in the contract. And what the contract. needs to potentially be fine-tuned in the contract. Right, right. Especially in the early days, if it's a collab agreement, you know, and it's a two or three pager, you're, you're, you, your lawyer representation is, is trying to... Uh, put or think of and put down every possible eventuality or you know every possible mm. every possible universe of, of possibilities right like right, right. in this agreement and it's and it's there's only a certain extent to which that can be done at that at that early stages so as the relationship develops chances are the contract may need to be tweaked and they may may need to be tweaked by way of a mutual you know, mutually agreeable amendment, um, right. or replaced with from you know, or graduate from the level of a deal memo to a long form agreement when things start to get a little more real and there's m much more money on the line or higher stakes and potentially also much more money for legal fees. <laughs> yeah, and I think like what's being fleshed out for me is those the way that those things come together, right? There's the relationships and the quality of that relationship and the trust of that relationship. There's like the ability to actually execute those things. So, you know, you, you want, you know, you can look and say, they're gonna do all these things for you if you if I do all these things for you, but does the, the other party have the ability, a track record to even deliver on those things? And then there's that like fact that it's not fixed. There are gonna have to be points to revisit. Um, Jonathan, I wanted to ask you a question about a point of the conversation we had when we were talking about your willingness to sometimes, you know, take less in a situation to, in order to level up yourself or to work with someone or, you know, you, you maybe if you'll take a show that you wouldn't necessarily have done with maybe another agent or another artist or you look at the situation and say maybe this is not the best scenario for this particular show but the track record of this agent or of this artist is really good in this team or you know i, I want to build a relationship here um how do you gauge that where you're looking at scenarios that yeah you got to be prudent about is this artist going to be able to fill this venue is the rate that they're asking for 
reasonable? Is the timing good with the project? And you have that calculus, but you're also willing sometimes to take a risk. Like, on what situations will you take a risk? I mean, it, it's every, I'm sure everybody's gone through this, but no two situations are different. It sounds like sort of an overused adage, but it's so true I because mean, there's so many different things. You know, a lot of it starts with sort of, you know, research and my understanding of the market based on my experience and, you know, a bunch of other factors. But at the end of the day, it's, you know, I think the one word that keeps coming up here is relationships. So I really have to look beyond that situation in front of me and see, you know, what's, you know, what's really at stake here. So, it, you know, and it, and, and it goes all over the place. And, and, and also, you know, the relationships I value are the relationships where there's a mutual respect. And the mutual respect basically dictates that, you know, I won't be asked to do anything that's, you know, contrary to sort of my well-being financially or, you know, professionally. Uh, but it's, you know, most of them are small things. You know, it's, uh, you know, we had a scenario just, uh, you know, a couple of weeks ago where I'm dealing with an artist who has got a huge rec records, plural, uh, you know, they're, they kept pushing the deal, pushing the deal. And these deals for me are structured on, on budgets, they're all financial arrangements based on how many tickets I sell, so on and so forth. So it's a finite amount of money. So it's not about, it, I just can't pay it out. Um, and my business model is based on me making money at the end of the day from what's left between what I pay everybody, my expenses, and what I sell in tickets. And they just kept coming back to me and be like, listen, you know what, I, I, you know, I know we said we were going to bring our instruments, but we're not bringing our instruments, can you just pay for it? And all of a sudden I just started, I'm like, okay, let me look at my numbers, I run the numbers, and that number gets smaller and smaller and smaller. And to the day of the show where it's like, you know, they're asking for like this bottle and this bottle, and I just like smaller, smaller, smaller. So, but at the end of the day, it's, it's, for me it was a long-term thing, right? It's a, it's a long-term play with this agent, who's fairly powerful and represents acts that we're all familiar with in this room. Um, and this artist who was, you know, just sort of uh, in an ascension. And, you know, for, I'm like, fine, I'm going to spend, not make a couple thousand dollars that I would have, but I'll be there. Because then in, in going back to the contract, I was well within my rights, legally, if I want to go there, to say no. You know, we negotiated this. You were supposed to cover this. You were supposed to cover this. It's based on this. You know, I'm not asking you to do two shows now. You know, I'm not asking you to do double the show. I'm not asking you to come and take pictures with my family. It's, that's not in the contract, right? So literally, I could have done it. And they, and they would have respectfully said, no, that's cool. Thank yeah. you. They, they wouldn't have been able to say anything else. But, yeah, which was fine. But there's a but. but there's, and that's what contracts are. Co contracts cover the buts, the ifs, the what ifs, the whens you know, in sort of broader terms. Uh, and that's really what it is. But not, I've never, thankfully, had to really call out a contract. Uh, I think for me, though, the but that I'm referring to is that, but you wanted to continue to work with this agent. But this artist, though they're asking for a lot now, you're not making a lot of money off of this show. If you say, you know what, you've asked for too much, I'm pulling out of this, then if they're on an ascension, when they come back, they're not working with you mm. likely it, right? it may hurt the relationship yeah and, and, it's, and, it's and that's that's a chance i have to take all right like it's i'm well within my you know right to say like no at some point and you know it takes a while but i just i rationalize everything i do to this person right, right. right i'm just like listen you know not been a good year this 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 you know it's generally shows are down it's really competitive blah 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 um 
and the people I work with, I, there are hundreds of agents that in the music business. Most of them in, in the U.S., the ones that I deal with. Uh, but I deal with 90% of my shows come from seven agents, wow. which is very small. But that's hard <laughs> notes. But it, it's but that's these are relationships. And I there's an agent I deal with who I bought my very first show from in 1993, wow. and she is still. What show would you? What show was that? On the far side. Oh, right. is, that, is that the same one? The, the same that, one. Yeah. Oh, wow. <laughs> and, it, and it's she Full is she is to this day maybe singularly the most one of the most powerful agents in music. Yeah. You know, she's been the only agent Eminem's ever had, right? She has been the only agent the Roots ever had. She is. Chance the Rapper's agent, she is Bozzy's agent, she is uh, Travis Scott's agent, she was, she's repped, name and act, she, Kanye West, on, three years ago, on one of his 2 like a.m. The floating one? The flowing one, in all caps, yeah. like, was like, Kara Lewis, I love you, like, you know, and ag- artists don't call out agents, it's just not something yeah. they do. Like, they don't thank them in speeches, you know, they thank their homies, they thank God, they thank, but <laughs> she, like, that, she, she's a legend. She's, she is, if you, I might be dating myself here, but she's name-checked, and in my opinion, like, the album I grew up on, Paid in Full, Eric B. and Rakim, she's name-checked, and she was 21 years old at the time, in wow. that song, wow. and that song will live forever. So, you know, that's the relationship, and I still deal with her, right? So... Uh, and I'm not buying Travis Scott shows from her because, you know, I'm not Live Nation. Uh, but we still have a relationship, right? So that's, that's at the end of the day, that's all I, got. all I really have is that. Well, one of the things you share with me, and I want to ask this question to each of you in terms of as much as you can say, not the formula, but your formula for how you gauge that. Because I know, Jonathan, you were saying you go with paper. It's like, how much do I think, how much are they charging? What are my expenses? How much do I think we're gonna make back on this show? And then the long-term relationship. Like you have, you literally have that on paper in front of you, right? Um, to, to make that decision. Um, to, to each of you, like for looking at a situation where, you know, do I want to take the risk here? Or, you know, like what's your formula for making the decision on how you're going to go about that? Whether you're gonna enter into something that maybe is not the most rewarding financially, but has a relationship um, to it. Mm-hmm. Or, or on the other side of it, like, you know what, this is asking too much of me. It's a, a relation, the relationship or the exposure, which a lot of people, you know, is, that's the compensation. Mm-hmm. Sometimes it's not worth it. Mm-hmm. How, what's your formula for deciding that? Mm-hmm. Get in, yeah, you wanna go? Um. <laughs> um, I think, yeah, just understanding, um, who you're working with, who you're collaborating with. I said collaborating, but um, who you're, you decide to... You it's know, not a bad word. It's just I know. misused. <laughs> it's misused. <laughs> but um, who I decide to, you know, if I see, for example, like that person, that artist, let's say if I wanted to work with them, they might not be in a financial position to compensate me or whatever, but I believe in their vision and I see that they have you know, potential to create something, you know, beyond ascension or whatnot. But I think for me, that's what I really gauge. And mm-hmm. I, I, I see the potential of the artist, the designer, the, the brand or whatnot. And that's what I really build, but to build with. And um, when that happens, I mean, there's, for example, I work with a designer and I'm the brand ambassador for it, uh, Money Jussel. 
and I've been working with her for five years. Like literally, she just graduated in fashion design and now she has her own store in Yorkville. Yeah. And being able to see that progression and be by her side and you know, doing those free shoots initially, um, now I get to be her brand ambassador and, and I do have, you know, it's more of a verbal agreement, but we've, we've established, you know, that every time I, you know, I, we, I send her invoices and whatnot and, and we have that relationship too. And you just, knowing that you could build that with certain people and whatnot, it's important. But I also have, again, a great team that helps me see if this yeah. is like a, an opportunity that I should go for and, and maybe go for the exposure or do I, you know, give them that, no, you need to pay up. <laughs> well, and, and I think that, like, to say, you know, seeing potential and seeing alignment in the relationship are reasons why you would forego the compensation for your time and talent. Exactly. Um, and that's a that's an interesting um, formula when you surface like that. Jelly, what about you? What? Um, yeah. Like, well, what, what would make you work with somebody where you're not being paid what you feel like your time is worth? I believe in it. I believe in, in whatever's happening. I, I can see it. It may not happen, but I believe it will. And as crazy as it sounds, if you believe enough, <laughs> you, you can, things happen. And but when, okay, so when you look back now on collaborations or projects or people that you believed in that worked. Everything are there went. similar characteristics though? Like what are, are there sim similar attributes for the, for the situations where you, you know, maybe the beginning of it, you're putting a lot of time and value into it, but you saw the potential. Like what are the attributes that you see consistently that make you say, yes, I believe in this? Um, first is, is how much um, that person believes in, in what they're doing. Um, and usually, they're a lot. Not even usually. A lot of times, the belief, the per, the belief that that artist or that person has in themselves and in what they're doing, will give me belief. I, you know. Um, yeah, like passion is infectious. Yeah. Right, and, and exactly, and uh, so the fact that they really believe in what they're doing, and and when you really believe in what you're doing, you you go above and beyond whatever's required um you do what's what's necessary and uh and when <clears throat> excuse me when um when that happens that's it, it's it's organic you know you it, it just happens because i i believe in you i see what you're doing I, I you know and you can't like you said it's infectious you 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 and if you have any idea about what's happening whether it's uh, promotion, television, uh, music, where you have some experience <clears throat> and you can see that, okay, this person's checking all the boxes. Right, right. They're, they're doing the right shit. Um, a lot of times you're like, you know what, let me, let me get in there and help them. And uh, be for, this, for the same reason, because in, as, as um, uh, Kevin just, just uh, said, you, you wind up becoming a part of something. That's it's more valuable than than whatever you could have got paid at the beginning. Whatever right? you could have got paid in the beginning, because yeah, is what what we used to like to call the extra. You, you get the extra rub, you know. What I mean, you get you get whatever is whatever. It's a legal term. Sorry, <laughs> talking about 
<laughs> but, but yeah, you know, it's it's like, yeah, yeah it, it's it's um, you know, they they'll have a car there for you, but you know, the extra rub is you have a car there for you, and your blunt's already rolled in it. You know, what I'm <laughs> <laughs> like yeah, you know what I mean? Like people care; they they think about what the little things. They know you. Know you. I mean? They know your heart. They, they know your heart, and. Um, <laughs> And uh, I mean, w going back to the, the one thread that, that is unavoidable in discussing contracts is relationship, because that's all it is. Um, and it, 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 it's a marriage. Uh, marriage is a contract. I, I think people ought to go see lawyers before they get married, just like entering into any contract. They do, it's <laughs> called prenup. Prenup. <laughs> True, but not only for the financial part of it, you know. Um, but no, truly, that—that's really what it is. It's—it's—it's—it's it's, it's, uh, it's all a relationship. So well, yeah, I know. And to that point, like people say, in sickness and in health, right? But then you know, I was uh, watching um, was that show Atlanta's Housewives. This is the, a friend of mine from Toronto who's supposedly she's in one of the episodes. I haven't seen her yet, so I'm like watching all these episodes. <laughs> But you just, you're a fan, okay. Yeah, just, come on. I know, I'm really not, but. You believe, no, you, you believe in this person, clearly. <laughs> I believe in Tanya. Um, How did you is that kind of guy? <laughs> um, yeah, I just said that. All right, so, but the point of it was that um, there's a character who has cancer, and he, I think he was in previous episodes, and like, they're all like, oh, you look you know, skinnier, but you have a strong spirit and all that kind of stuff. But a big, a really interesting stream in the show is that they're showing um, the effect that him having cancer is having on his wife. Like she's like this big personality and tours and travels around and they live this like really high life. But so much of it now is like, well, he doesn't have the energy to get out of bed. And like, you know, and you don't know like, a lot of her life, she can't live her life the same now because, you know, she d didn't know what it was to be married, when it says in sickness and health, to be married to someone who is terminally ill, like, that changes her life. And I think, like, to your point, it's, I, it is, I think, a really good example where you're talking about marriage as, as a way of thinking about contracts. Like, what are the consequences of this? This sounds fine now, but... What does this mean if, if this really does happen? You know? and it, I just want to touch on what you said. It, it's, it reminds me, I've, I've walked away from some amazing ideas and pitches because I didn't like, I guess, or get a good vibe from the person, even though the idea was like, made me salivate. Um, and I've invested in or become a part of projects where I was kind of mad about it, but I thought, you know, this person is like doing, gonna do something, right? So, you know, and it's like there's a kid who works for me who pick, he works for me because he pitched me an idea, and I'm like, the idea is kind of garbage, but you're great. Like, yeah, yeah. if we can kind of put this to the side, like, come work for him. And he was like, okay. And it was like, <laughs> you know, so it's really at the end of the day, it's like the person because the idea is great, but the idea yeah. will live or die or move on. It's that that person is the person that you're always gonna be. I think that that lens is a really actual practical tool, right? Because as you said it around someone's passion, start, what started flashing through my mind is 
the, some of the people that I connect with and work with and collaborate with who really believe in themselves and really believe in what they're doing. And you know, then there's sometimes where it's like, yeah, I do this, you know, and, and there isn't that same type of belief. And like, when you start to think about that as a lens, like I'm, I actually really want to seriously look at someone potentially that I'm gonna work with through that lens. Like, do you really believe in yourself? And totally, because no matter what you're doing, you're gonna come up against it. You're gonna come up against things that it's never gonna go exactly how you would plan it or, or, or would like it, to be honest, you know? So, like going back to the sickness yeah. and the health. Yeah. So it's like everybody's good when, when it's booming, but then when it slows down, when we gotta go back to the drawing board, yeah. when we gotta start over, when we gotta like revamp who's, you know what I mean? When we gotta get our hands dirty again, are you still down? And um, so for me, these are the people that I, I try to associate with or collab with or work with where, you know, the contract is secondary. It's almost inconsequential, you know? Yeah. Because if I'm not feeling you, if we're not, jiving, it doesn't matter, <laughs> you know what I mean? It's not gonna work out, it's gonna fall apart. Anyway, we're gonna be in, in court or in the street fighting, one or two. So, um, you know, <laughs> you've been there. <laughs> Long story short is, yeah, that's, that's, that's really the, um, that, that's, that's the key to it. And when, when I read your, your quote, is the, and that's, you know, when we talk about it, there's, there's, that is the common denominator. Period. You know, um, it's about who you. Oh, it's just about this curse. Can we curse? Yeah. Oh, it's about who you fucking with. You know what I'm saying? <laughs> you just gotta fuck with the right people, like, and, and fuck with the people that's fucking with you, like, like. We're a lot now. Yeah, I, I was yeah. holding it. Yeah, I've been holding it back this whole time. But, but yeah, it, it, it's it's simply it's simply that. I mean. Were you holding that back like the whole time? Because you I didn't need to. Back. I've been choosing my. I don't know if you can hear like the shakiness in my voice. Cause I'm like I'm trying like to choose my words carefully. <laughs> Usually I you know I just I speak my mind. Always and, learning. And, I gotta tell uh, people beforehand. It's uh you know yeah. use whatever language you feel. Um, Divya, I wanted to ask you the same question. I guess from two standpoints. How how do you make decisions and read on who people you'll work with? where you're going to take a risk, where you're not necessarily, you know, the terms are not the best or the compensation's not the best, but how do you gauge that? And, and the secondary lens, because you advise people, is how do you advise people as well? Um, and, and how to read a situation and say, you know, should I go with this or not? Um, when the deal is not, like, and, and I think the question's really important to say, I'm talking about when the deal's not the best. If the deal's great, it's, okay, it's a little easier. When the deal's not the best, but there's still some potential, how do you advise and how do you decide? So, I mean, I have to, I feel like I have to, you know, judge. Are you going to say it depends? Oh. <laughs> no, I wasn't going to say that. I okay. was going to say I, I feel I, you know, meet a lot of different personalities every day. And, you know, that's partly why I love what I do. I get to meet a lot of new people, uh, whether it's clients of mine or, or, you know, the people on the other side, whether, you know, the artists or the lawyers or the other rep or the agents. And I have to gauge the personality. I have to, I have to, you know, have a good sense of who my client is, as well as who they're entering into a business relationship right. with. And they're very much two different tests. So, you know, I don't, for in terms of who my client is, 
I'm going to take a risk on you, right? You're going to pay me legal fees, and I'm going to take a risk on you. It's a moderated risk. But whereas they are playing, they're taking a much bigger risk in their lives because they're not a service provider. They're partnering up with someone to make something big. I always admire you know, my clients and folks in the entertainment industry because they've, I think, in some ways, a lot more, a lot more chutzpah than I do, you know, I just became a lawyer, like that's boring. And like, I, you know, th there's a certain element of certainty in it. There are people who are more risk averse than others, right? And, and, and some of that is, is natural and it's kind of how you are. Whereas they are taking way bigger leaps of faith than I would. And I think being in this industry does require you to take a way bigger leap of faith on a regular basis in the sense of, you know, I'm, I'm gonna, there's no, I'm not getting paid to do this right now. Um, this is an idea that I have, and I really love this idea, and I came up with this idea together with this other awesome person, and I think, you know, like my litmus test read is telling me that they are, you know, right on the money, and we vibe really well together, and we're going to do this thing together. Well, what are some of the key questions you're going to ask that person? So someone comes to you with that scenario, and they're like, you know, I would come up with this idea, there's no money involved with it, it's a big risk, I'm going to be putting a lot into this. Are there some key questions that you are going to ask them in that situation um, to, to say like, yeah, this is, this is a risk worth taking or I wouldn't sign anything with this person. I think you need, they need to be sure about short-term versus long-term goals. You know, it's like you still need to be able to put food on your table and a roof over your head. It's really easy to get really excited in this industry. It's really easy to get excited uh, by ideas mm -hmm. in this industry. And so the way I like to ground my clients, especially the emerging, whether it's film or television uh, producers or musicians or DJs or visual artists, it's like, you know, you got to have a certain amount of, of practicality, a certain amount of pragmatism. Um, you need to be able to pay your bills and sustain yourself because an idea is not going to feed you at the end of the day, right? Or it could, but it's just going to take a little bit of time. Mm -hmm. So, um, I want to open things to questions. I know, especially for a topic like this, there could be a lot of questions in the audience. Um, one thing, we won't walk through the details of it, but Divya did um, create something, that um, a document. And so I, there's two parts to it. I'll show you basically what it is, but it's... Um, the first half, I believe. Yeah, do you want to... Yeah, I have both of them. Oh, okay. Yeah, so do you want to just give a very high level, like... and. Sure. You can, I'll put my, e my email address is going to be up at the end or um, social, if you send me your email address, I'll email this document to you and Divya created it for today. But what it is, if you want to um, just a high level, let people know what it is and I can flip to the next slide as well for the second half. Sure. I mean, it goes back to, I think, how this, how we began this panel today, which is kind of discussing what the basic elements of a contract is or, you know, what makes a piece of paper enforceable an enforceable agreement in the court of law. And as I was saying at the very beginning of this panel, there's got to be, and like, you know, I'm trying not to use too much legal jargon here. There's got to be an exchange of goods or services. Um, so so that there's got to be an offer and an acceptance of an offer. So what whatever the offer is, you know, it's like I'm going to paint your living room for two joints. Uh, you know, it's... Mm -hmm. <laughs> It's, it's really great. Is this the contract you get? What? It's legal no, now. There's a lot of things you want people to do, like around the house, paint, clean the room. A lot of chores. It's only gonna cost two joints. I gotta. <laughs> 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 
I already got the paint. Rolling paper. It's a small room. It's a condo downtown here. Um, so there's got to be an offer and acceptance, and and so the, if there's got to be an exchange of goods for some kind of consideration, whether it's monetary or non-monetary. The example I just gave you clearly is non-monetary. Yeah. <laughs> and then um, the the second half of the document goes into yeah, these we other talked two about acceptance and what consideration is. Um, and again, the the idea here is that there has to be a meeting of the minds. The two the people entering into the agreement are on the same page. They've agreed to the same deal terms, and they know what the deal terms are, which, as I was saying earlier, can get lost in translation in many emails, which is why you don't want to rely on a verbal agreement supported by emails. You want it as black and white as possible without with as minimizing the room for interpretation, because that's where I make my living, like interpretation <laughs> of bad contracts that have been signed, and now I'm trying to interpret it one way rather than the other in favor of, of my client. And so, and you know, those are again some of the basic tenets of an agreement, but as I also mentioned, you know, there's certain, there's got to be a certain level of intentionality that the two parties are wanting to enter into legal enforceable agreement together, and there has to be a level of mental competence. So, you know, I thought the minor story was really interesting. Jellystone, like you were way wiser. I got stories. Way, yeah. Like, <laughs> you know, really wise for 17-year-old being like, I'm going to sign this. It's not going to be enforceable anyways. <laughs> it's amazing. It's hilarious. Um, okay. But, you know, so, it, it, yeah, that's, that's Actually, all, that all matters in the enforceability of the contract. Just because you brought that up, that said contract, I terminated that contract on full scap in handwriting, and he had to sign it to let me go. And this was years later, yeah. when I was, like, past 18. Okay. Notwithstanding anything else, sir. <laughs> Absolutely. But the fine print in the contract, actually talking about that same thing, was in the contract we signed, like we said, if I ever made any money, I'd never make any money. He had sold my publishing, or the group's publishing, to uh, EMI Records. And this is how I wound up with my publishing deal. Because at this time, I know nothing about contracts or whatever the case is. But after... Um, figuring out um, through, through a, a beautiful lady named Sarah Myers, who uh, used to head up the Zulu Nation chapter of Toronto, as well as do a, a slew of other things in, in the industry and in the culture at the time. Uh, she kind of helped me with the wording of, uh, and I, I wrote the contract, uh, I got out the contract, and then, um, and then I started to kind of move around the city doing little shows and whoop de whoop. And then uh, I was approached by EMI and they was like, hey, we know you're not in that contract anymore, but the fine print in that contract says, even though if you come out the contract with him, you're still in a contract with us. <laughs> and uh, notwithstanding. So we had to, um, anyway, long story short, I figured that out and I, it was an opportunity at the same time. So instead of, um, I don't want to say destroy, ending the relationship totally, I decided to enter into a relationship with the publisher directly, but uh, we we were I was able to negotiate a whole new terms that had nothing to do with the original leverage. contract. Exactly. Yeah. yeah. So leverage yeah. is hugely important in, in any negotiation, and that's uh, part of what I gauge at the outset when I said um, I try to understand the tone of the relationship. Part of that is like, okay, does my client have more leverage here, or does the other guy have more leverage here? Yeah, and I think that um, is an easy thing sometimes, or 
it's never an easy thing to measure, but it's a lot harder when we are talking about the level that, that we're, a lot of us are operating on, where you know we are collaborating, we're doing things informally, we're establishing ourselves, you know, um, or there isn't like you know major financing behind the project and long laying out of rights. It's like what leverage do I have now and what, how do I ensure I, I maintain that leverage and not give that up in something that sometimes is not as formal. Um, but I wanted to open up to questions. I know, uh, Wilson, you told me from the get-go you had a question. Um, and I'll, I'll pass this mic back and then um, we can go, because just so we can have the question on the mic. Um, Yeah, it was a pretty detailed question. Let's talk about it after. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> Thanks. Um, so, uh, in today's music industry, specific, like speaking about music specifically, um, the trend now is to sort of uh, go with partnership deals rather than uh, specific record deals. Um, but, I mean, from the outside, these things seem really nuanced. Um, from any of your experiences from any, I don't know if you just know about these par types of partnership deals or have dealt with some, but I think today that's probably the best situation for any artist really and truly because there's no need for like a distribution deal anymore and barely a need for a record deal. Um, but if you get to that point where you want to sign a, a partnership deal, are there some specific things uh, you'd suggest um, an artist make sure they have when it comes to that partnership because I think I, I don't even really know personally the, the best scenario for like what that partnership looks like. You know, should it be um, I have my publishing or I have 50% of my publishing? Are there some nuanced things that artists may not know about these types of situations that record deals can still undercut and like just rip you out of? Um, you know. Um, so, after going through all the stuff I already told you about, my first contract, 17, um, negotiating a, a publishing deal essentially on my own, and um, all that kind of put me in a space. So. By the time I got like a, a major red contract, which was with uh, Warner Brothers Music, and which uh, they helped me distribute the song money, um, uh, we did a partnership. Um, what I did was I created my own company, I signed myself, and then I did a partnership between my company and Warner Brothers. What what you what happens in a in the partnership scenario, the reason I was able to do that was because I had something they wanted. Um, and it's, it's impossible to create that partnership without it. You have something I want, I have something you want, we partner up. Um, so that's what you need. You need to have something they want. Uh, so whether it's a hit record, whether it's uh, the ability to make hit records, um, the access to whatever it is, you have to have something that is is either necessary or wanted by the other party. 
I think and that applies also right across industries as well. Like we're talking specifically correct. music, but I think that correct. point you're making is a really important thing to consider is like, I have something. And we both and value like, it. Wait, if someone's going to book with Jonathan, right? Like that they, the, they have the album, they have the act, they have all these things, but you have a track record of being able to access venues, promote a show, fill a, a building. So there is leverage. People want to partner with this yeah. man, exactly. I mean, that's, you're absolutely right. And, in, and, and you, the leverage thing is like a sliding scale. You just have to understand your position. You have to understand your position. You have to understand the other party's position. And if you, it's, it's we work in a very transparent world now, more so than when I started. Uh, so overstating your position is not going to help you at all. Right? So it's, uh, you know, and, and by the same token, understanding your position is going to hurt you. So that's, I think, the, the, the key is to understand that going in and, and, yeah, uh, you know, for me at the end of the day, you know, understanding my value and and being able to walk away from something if I think that's not being appreciated. And and it's to what Jelly said. There's no hard feelings. Like you know, I have these conversations weekly with agents where I just agree to disagree and I bow out. Bow out. Uh, and that's to me, it's just a mutual respect thing. It's like if I don't accept these terms, you know, respectfully, and I. You know, doing it on email, I always try to start with that respectfully. Uh, you know, I'm going to walk away from this. Good luck. No hard feelings. If anything comes up again, keep me in mind, and we move on. Right? Like that's the thing. But it's but it is that it's understanding that leverage. And sometimes I don't have any leverage, so I'm going in there, and if it's not my reputation that's speaking for me, it's got to be money, right? Or it's got to be access to something. So that's you know, it 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 changes. But yeah, it's it's a value system. You, you 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 have something I deem valuable. I have something you deem valuable, and and like like John said, it it, it goes across the board. Whether it's music, um, once you're dealing with contracts, to 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 have a a fair partnership or a true partnership, that's what it's about. I think you're gonna bring the same uh, value or as much value as I'm going to bring, and then where the lever sliding scale of leveraging comes in is that mm, I think I bring a little bit more value to the situation. So I want the lion's share. And you're going to say, well, you know what? OK, because I'm only doing this much. Or no, 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 no. It looks like I'm doing this much. But on the back end, I do all of this. And you only see this part. So no. you know, And, and these all <clears throat> will be you know, defined in whatever the situation is whatever each party's bring it to the table. So, um, you know, and in my opinion, partnerships are the, the best way to work uh, because everybody is, is accountable. Everybody has to pull their weight for the thing to happen. So as a cautionary tale, I would add here that an agreement being called a partnership agreement, it certainly changes the optics of the situation and the relationship, right? It makes it in some ways disarms the artist a little bit because they're like, "Whoa! Like they want me. They want to partner up with me. Like this is huge." Um, and that's all great and all, but then you know I've seen some pretty bad some partnership agreements that are pretty kind of heavily weighted towards one party over the other. So you still got to look at the detail. You still got to make sure if it's a true and authentic partnership 
that meets your needs and expectations, and it's not someone just pulling the wool over your eyes. So it's not inherently a good thing, a partnership agreement, unless the you know what you know, that part, the nature of the partnership. You negotiate. Yeah. I think yeah, we yeah. mentioned in this panel today. It's you never take never take an agreement for face value. Um, it's what you negotiate it to be. Yeah. Are there any other questions? I know I'm right behind here, and then pass it to the side there. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so I had a question about um, when you're discussing ideas or if you have, like, for instance, like a deck or something that has um, your ideas for, um, for something that you're trying to organize and then you share it with somebody that maybe has, like, more resources. Um, so, like, when, when handling, like, NDAs, how, how solid is an NDA with protecting your intellectual property? I mean, if it's drafted well, it could, it's, could be pretty solid. It could be pretty helpful. Um, you know, it, for my clients who are in film and television, they often, especially if they're bigger companies or, you know, bigger players in the industry, they don't want to reveal an idea or a deck or... Because it, it can't just be an idea. It has to be a physical manifestation of an idea. But they don't want to circulate a deck or what have you without the other parties entering into an NDA. Mm -hmm. And yeah, it's, it's, if it, again, if it's a good, well-drafted NDA, that is a solid way of, of protecting yourself. Sorry, I just have a little slight follow-up. So like in scenarios where it's like, let's say you show the, the person your deck or whatever, and then you get them to sign an NDA, and then let's say they show it to so-and-so, like their partner or someone else that's like hasn't signed the NDA, but then they don't necessarily take your exact idea, but they create another version of that and then cut you out of it. So the person who breached the NDA is their necks on the line, right? You have... Privity of to use a boring legal term, you have privity of contract with that first person, in, in meaning that you've entered in the, into the into the NDA with that first person. You haven't entered into an NDA with that third party, their friend, right? So you can only enforce an NDA against the party who's actually in the NDA with you. But it sounds to me like in that situation, if, if they weren't supposed to, there's you know no clause permitting them to like reveal that information to a third party, then they've breached their NDA with you, right? Often NDAs will have language saying that information can be revealed to representations like lawyers, agents, managers, accountants. Because again, that's the practical thing. It's like okay, I'm, I'm promising to keep this information confidential but I can't entirely keep it confidential because my lawyer already knows about it because they're reviewing this agreement, right? But if they're not like a representation of their completely different third party, then your friend who you've entered into the NDA with has potentially, again, potentially breached the NDA, right? I'd have to look at the NDA to, to be sure, but yeah, and, that's, and then that's your recourse. Your recourse is against your friend, not the third party. You don't have an NDA with them. I would say, don't tell nobody shit. You keep your cars close to your chest. Yeah, you have some experience with that too. Do you want to just, not necessarily go into the stories, but uh, any like kind of advice or lessons learned about how to protect your ideas? Yeah, I think as artists, we get excited and we like to share our ideas with other people a lot. Um, but I would really recommend, uh, I've had incidents where you know artists that I thought were friends, um, I shared an idea with, and then the next week I see had them having an art exhibition with my idea, and um, and getting paid for it. So uh, that happens often. What I would recommend is that um, 
share your experiences, not your ideas, until you know that there, this is a, a rich relationship. You have trust, you have integrity, and you know what this person's about. You've seen how they treat other people, and they're not doing the same thing to other people as well, um, which, you know, I, further on, I did see this person doing it to other people too. So um, that's kind of what I would say, just sharing your experiences more than your ideas. And also, I just feel like I have to add there, like in terms of knowing what is really protectable versus what is not protectable. Exactly. So right? what, is, what is that? Like what's protectable and what's not? So an idea in and of itself in the ether that we talk about is not protectable by Canadian copyright law, right? Or most countries' copyright law, but certainly not here. It has to be a physical manifestation of the idea. So I would encourage, you know. But so if, you like, can, if I drew the idea? Yeah, that's a physical manifestation. Okay. Like a physical, something fixed. That's the lowest level. Fixated like, in something physical is, it, you know, that's more copyrightable. And a good, really good example, actually, is graffiti and street art, right? There's a lot more litigation around. Uh, graffiti and street art today. Like H&M um, was trying to use people's graffiti yeah. and not giving them any credit for it, right? Yeah, I mean, it, it, the like a, a, a piece of a mural, a street mural, right? I mean, it's an idea that has been fixed in a physical wall that is copyright protectable. A lot of um, street artists are now realizing that and they're enforcing and protecting their rights accordingly because and what we're finding out is that just because their act is illegal it doesn't mean they've lost copyright ownership of what they've done. In fact, there's no condition in the Copyright Act that says that the act has to be legal, right? So all I'm saying is if you really want to, you know, protect your ideas, you have to make sure they're in actually in a physical form. You're not just talking about it without there being, for instance, a deck. And that's like the easiest, you know, in film and television, that's the easiest way to get your ideas down into a, a tangible form that is copyright protectable. So Even that it could be a one-page like outline, it could be a one-page concept document. Yes. You know, I've done, I've negotiated like option purchase agreements where the the idea that is has been physically manifested is on one page and it's attached as a schedule to the agreement. I think like that's a really like practical takeaway. Like you have ideas, make them physical get in them, some way. Them, yeah, get them down. Um, yeah. And so uh, we, we have time for one more question. I know there's one, a few there. Um, black hat, this guy in the black hat right here. And then we'll, we'll have to wrap. Uh, so this is just a question about how, to, how you acquire a client. So say everything I've done up until now has been emails and handshakes, and now there's a deal on the table, which is you know, going to be of considerable impact, but I just don't want to sign it. What's is what's the etiquette or what's the way to reach out to someone such as yourself and bring that proposed agreement to you to have you look over it to look out for my best interest? How does that work? Do we just call you? What's the? Just call me. All right. <laughs> cool. Well, no, and I think that, like that's the level sometimes we have to go to in the conversation, right? Is like. There's, there's uh, most people outside the legal world are not aware of what are all the types of lawyers and okay, you know if I'm a visual I, I didn't actually know when we were talking you're, you're saying you know you represent sort of visual artists you're like yeah this artist here is showing me art in the wall and I never thought of an entertainment lawyer as representing sculptors and painters right so as as a sculptor or a painter I'm not myself but if I was like I I don't think I would be initially looking for 
an entertainment lawyer. So yeah, it's, th that you know, question it's about media like, and how entertainment do you at large, because what is the common thread among all of that? It's IP, intellectual property, intellectual property, intellectual property. Amazing. Um, well, we do have, based off of time, have to wrap up. Um, any last thought? Anybody? If you're burning to say something, don't feel rushed. Uh, thank no, you. No. Okay, well, I want to. Uh, oh, yeah. oh, I just wanted to say one thing. I don't know where it kind of came from, but you know, if you value your your art, your work as an artist, you shouldn't have to do that much selling to the other party. If you really, if you find yourself convincing somebody, a label, a manager, a publisher, uh, you know, a production company that what you have is worth something, at some point you just, you know, you, you're, you're basically devaluing yourself and decreasing your leverage. That's when you just sort of have to stop and they don't get it. Because if you do manage at some point to convince them, you're always gonna be convincing them. It's always gonna be an uphill battle uh, and you're gonna be working from sort of your heels. So just keep that in mind. It's a hard thing to, to understand sometimes. It, maybe it's not your time. Maybe you haven't built your leverage. Maybe you haven't put in you know, that work, or sometimes those are the best ideas, where you just have to, you know, like artists, people who have been, you know, knocked on every record label's door and, you know, and then decided, I'm gonna do it myself, and then all of a sudden, you know. So, at some point, if you're doing a lot of knocking, it's time to just do your thing and wait for your door to be knocked on. I agree. I agree, oh. a thousand percent on that. That was an amazing right closing thought. And, it, and it's funny how it comes back full circle to relationships, because if you're trying to convince that person they should be with you, then <laughs> you're you, always going to be convinced. Speaking about the relationships, right? Just like uh, and it going. said, the person who cares least controls the relationship, right? So what, it goes to exactly what you're saying. If, you, if you're trying to like, hey, please, please, look, please, look, this is the shit, this is the shit. Your stock is going down. Um, you yeah. wanna, you want your art Play and hard to get whatever you're doing away. is to speak let for yourself. Let them itself. chase you. Yeah, and let them, let them come for you. And with the, with that, we'll close. Thank you to Launchpad for hosting this. Thank you for everyone for being here. Um, to our panelists for your time and investment in this conversation and just being so open and honest. A round of applause for our panel. Thank you to Chris. Yeah, Thank thanks, Chris. Chris. Thanks for having us, man. And as you see here, if you do want that document that um, Divya prepared specifically, she created it for this. Um, hit me on the on my DM through the WaterVision or Chris at WaterVision.ca. I will email you the document and feel free to share it um, with whoever you want to share it with. Uh, have a good night. Oh, the last thing I was going to say because you were talking about partnerships and music business, et cetera, and so forth. And when dealing with contracts, when you're dealing with like those big entities, I just, in my mind, how I look at them is, is I always say like the music business, it, it was, it, it's created off a pimp hole system where the artist is the hole. And <laughs> it's just a fact. <laughs> and uh, just in the entertainment period, you know, and you got to pretty much tap dance for your money unless you create an intellectual property that then can tap dance for you. Uh, but it is a, a vampire system. So when you're going into it, you gotta have your eyes open knowing that, and basically the way I look at it is I'm gonna, I'm gonna let you suck my blood, but I'm gonna decide how much and for how long. And that's, and that's what it is.
Thank you, everybody. Have a good night. Thank you for listening to this episode. You can find out more about Convene at watervision.com or on Instagram. That's W-A-T-R Vision. Convene is founded and produced by myself, Chris Penrose, through Watervision Creative. Production, editing, and sound design of this episode is all done by Martin Agnon. We are going to keep these conversations going, so we will connect again on the next episode.